100 years ago, nobody cared about Ukraine or its disappearance as an independent state. Swallowed up as the newly born tyranny of the USSR flexed its imperial muscles. But that has now changed. Putin, Putin's Russian world revanchism and violence have accelerated the evolution of Ukrainian identity and increased the pressure for social, political and economic change. Perhaps the most perverse Russian invasion narrative is that Ukraine is not old and is not distinct from Russia. But Ukraine is not just a footnote to Russian imperial history. And at the end of this war, Ukraine could prove to be the rock upon which the decrepit, brittle hull of the Russian imperial ship tears itself apart and sinks from history. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe to help new people find our incredible speakers. And of course, if you enjoy the content, do please consider becoming a patron. Katerina Babkina is a Ukrainian poet, short story writer, novelist, playwright, and screenwriter. She is the winner of the Angelus Central European Literature Award 2021 for her book, My Grandfather Danced. Katerina was born in Ivano-Frankivsk, uh, Ivano Ukraine, and attended Taras Shevchenko National University of Kiev to study journalism, graduating in 2007, after which she worked as a freelance journalist. Babkina's novel for children, Cappy and the Whale, was published in translation by Penguin Random house uh, in the UK in April 2023. And Katerina was the first Ukrainian author to have her readings uh, logged at the uh, Library of Congress US. Katerina, I hope those details, uh, simple though they are, 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 are accurate. More or less. More or less. What you said at the beginning of your intro was not accurate at all, because you said that 100 year Nobody cared about Ukraine and its existence of disappearance as an independent country, which is completely untrue because Ukrainians there were a lot of Ukrainian people and Ukrainian organizations who did care. They did care for that like 200 years ago and 300 years ago and 400 years ago. And after all the way long, there were people who supported them. Not so much as now, because not so much of people, not so many people were aware that they exist. But still, they were there, and they did care for it all, at all a lot. So, please don't tell that some hundred years ago nobody cared for Ukraine and its existence. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 extraordinary the way it was not just written out of history because it was a conscious effort, wasn't it? It was a conscious effort. Uh, by Russia to subsume Ukrainian identity, to make it disappear. It was a conscious political effort to make that happen. So yes, I use the phrase people forgot, but actually it was a process and, and people planned it, people implemented it. Yes, but still it didn't work as we can see. After all, it didn't work. We well, are very strong in, in opposing that. Well, we'll dive into some of the characteristics because this has been a, a huge learning journey, I think, for the whole world, because many people did not understand the differences between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, and of course, that worked in the favor of uh, Russian propaganda. I think people are starting to become aware uh, that there are not just key differences, uh, but what some of those are. What words for you, though, are, are most significant in describing the differences between uh, Russian and Ukrainian identity? Oh, just the values we stand for. 
they are completely different and the cultural background, the attitude towards life and yourselves and in general, where are we going? Where are we moving as a society? Are two opposite directions. And it always was like that. Even living inside the Soviet Union, where we're supposed to be part of something. We never actually were the part. We were forced and held there by force. And still, it didn't work. It didn't last. As well as before, uh, being a part of uh, Russian Empire, and even before, it was always like some kind of oppression, and it never worked. And there's one quality which has, has emerged, uh, well, not just one quality, there are several qualities that have emerged in the many sort of conversations I've had uh, with Ukrainians. Um, one of those seems to be stubbornness, and uh, that seems to be quite an important quality in why Ukraine has survived and the identity has survived. Another one, however, is, is an interesting one, because this is a word that is often boasted is a key part of the Orthodox religion, but I don't see too much of it um, actually in Russia, and that's the word is humility. It seems to me that Ukrainians are, are relatively humble people uh, and as individuals uh, don't massively push themselves forward you, you don't get this sense of huge sort of ego and so on is this you know am i confusing personal characteristics and political characteristics here because okay. you know i listen to a lot of materials in russian and there is dare I say it, a, a, a certain arrogance a certain uh, imperial arrogance in the voice the tone and 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 many of the things that get said, irrespective of the political spectrum. Yeah, that's true. And I, you see, I see it from totally different perspective than you do. For I know that for hundred years, Ukrainians were made to be afraid of being Ukrainian, speaking up, and protecting their interests because they were literally like murdered for that. So we are only gaining back our voice. We are only gaining back our full power. Probably the world hasn't seen it yet. And we are just starting to recognize it ourselves. Like, I don't know if that's gonna sound humble, but we are even bigger than we know that we are. And Absolutely. that's the important part of becoming an independent state because you know, when Soviet Union fell apart on paper, it didn't end it in the people's head, it didn't end it as an element of the state, of the organization. And I, I, I have to, I mean, I have to accept that in some, some, some parts of functioning of Ukraine as a state, and in the minds of some people, Soviet Union did not end until now. And we needed to be ended. And we need to uh, recognize, to uh, realize ourselves strong, independent, big, and worth of speaking and showing and standing up. That's what is going on now. And as you can probably see, we've been interrupted uh, on the way by 
the scenes that we need to take care of, like the war, for instance. So it slows the process down a little bit, though it drags the attention towards us, but it slows us down when it comes on articulation and positioning of Ukraine and being Ukrainian and doing Ukrainian scenes, be it business or uh, literature or art whatsoever. Instead, for the last almost nine years, we are busy with getting attention. And until the 2022, we were like struggling for recognizing, for the recognition and the admitting that there is war going on in our country. And this is the Russian aggression, not some inner conflict or whatsoever. And now we just need to be the instrument to unite all the world to stop Russia, because if not gonna be stopped, uh, it's not gonna stop then. <laughs> Evil, um, unchallenged, I think. I mean, I spoke to one of the um, uh, leading retired generals uh, of the uh, British army, and I think this is a very strong concept that, that uh, and I put a label in evil or terror that goes unchallenged, multiplies and it changes and it finds other ways to, um, other places to infect, you know, its its way of behaving. Um, Ukraine, it seems to me, is the, is the barrier, is holding back uh, this sort of monster. And I think, um, well, I'll put it, a phrase it as a question. Do Ukrainians understand the nature of the beast they're fighting far better still than most people in the West? Because you live in London, you must have of many course, of course, Of course, we do understand and do know this beast. And we do know how big and dangerous it is. But we also do know how impossible it is to let the beast out because we've been there already. We've been almost swallowed by the beast and it should stop with us. That's why what you know people say now, the people who went to, their, to the front line, the people who are literally fighting, not on the literature front or economical front, but in the only real front, they say we have to fight, fight now, otherwise our children will have to be in this battle again. It should be ended. I mean, in in the in my vision, the end is coming when the finally Russian Federation, which is not a federation but forcibly or tri tricky, hold held together some different parts of the world. It just falls apart. There are so many smaller people, so many smaller territories there that are nothing like Russia and Russian, but still are the part of this scene. And uh, from my opinion, they would be so much better apart. That's probably what, what should happen. I don't know. And, but of course, we should gain back all our territories in the borders of 1980, 19, uh, I'm not good with numbers in English, I'm sorry. And, okay. yeah, and there is no, no chance we we stop. There is no chance we let this go on. There is no chance we let the beast out. But you know, the scene is that this beast is unfortunately not only located in Russia. Like for instance, I can mark the, I, I can see the relation between events in Ukraine, 
starting from 2014. And what did Hamas do lately in Israel and what provoked this the awful, for, for all sides, the awful situation, the so-called new war. They just saw that you can just do this, like come and kill and rape and torture and kidnap people and everybody gonna be deeply concerned but nothing really gonna happen. Uh, when when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine started, first I saw this, not, I, I was among those naive people who thought this is not possible, but when it started, like when you see the rockets with your own eyes, you have to admit it, okay? It, it was possible, it is possible, but <laughs> at the beginning I was like, no, we are not going nowhere because this is so impossible that now the whole world is gonna unite and stop it immediately. So this probably lasts for the day or two. Well, we, we all know what happens afterward. Everybody is deeply concerned. We receive we do receive a lot of support, however, that's not enough to stop that. And this should be the, the common common goal, the common aim. And then you see another beast and another evil looking at this and thinking, ah, okay, so nothing really gonna happen. Okay, let, let's go, let's let's do another crime, let's murder another innocent people. And this is awful. So this is like more like cancer, you know, who starts the metastasis in all the unexpected places. So you have to fight it from the all sides all together. You have to cure it, you have to remove this on all the levels. And not just treat the superficial symptoms. I'm about to say that we're just treating the the surface symptoms or giving somebody a paracetamol like a GP, you know, doctors in the UK always do, no matter what the ailment here, have a paracetamol and, and lie down for a little bit. Um, you have to treat the source, you know, if we're, and by calling it a beast, you know, well, there'll be comments on the video like, oh, you're dehumanizing Russians, you're dehumanizing people. This is this is a, a, a symbolic idea, isn't it? That, that this is like a hydra. You chop off one head and another okay, one. So I have to say, say something to the future commenters of this video when we are talking about Russians dehumanizing and whatsoever. For instance, keep in mind that there are uh, 90,000 cases reported of sex-based violence, raping, basically, let's call it raping, cruel raping done by Russian soldiers at the territories of Ukraine during the full-scale invasion. Just now keep in mind the uh, number of inhabitants in your town or city, if you're not coming, let's say from London or Washington, a smaller city. The amount of people who are raped is probably bigger than the amount of all people living in your city. And those are only reported cases Please mention there were people who did not survive those events, so they didn't report. And there were people who think they are strong enough or he, they, who are broken so much that they are not able to report and to seek for justice. And then imagine if there is 90,000 cases, there are at least 90,000 people who committed those crimes. And those are not Putin's alter ego. Those are usual guys between 18 and 27 
who went to school, who read Bloody Tolstoy, who played the same video games and listened to the same music probably that you do, but they were brought up by Russian mindset, Russian culture, and Russian whatsoever system. And this is probably what made them monsters, because they are monsters. How can you dehumanize them more than this? And it's not only like in 21st century, those are not only numbers. You can, and a lot of that, unfortunately, is available online, but there are the whole organizations who uh, gather the uh, video and photo evidences. For you have cameras everywhere, you have the cameras in the houses, video registrators, and this thing is have recorded a lot of awful things, a lot of things you can't even imagine that are possible, done not by Putin, committed no, not by order. They did it voluntarily because they could and because they wanted to. How can you dehumanize them more? Those guys have wives, mommies and daddies who brought them up like this. Friends who support them. And, and probably many of them consider How really can you dehumanize them more than mm. they are dehumanized already by what they are doing or what they are supporting? And it is going to be a strange question because terrible that that is, I find the explanation for it relatively simple. When you looked at how the Soviet Union functions, if you look at the education system, if you look at the dehumanizing effect of the USSR. It was essentially a police state designed to destroy interpersonal relationships, to destroy the ability of people to organize, socialize, and challenge the ruling party. Think and to that... take responsibility too. Because otherwise you won't be able to keep people living like this. Well, I find it remarkable how the human values, the humane values that we see that so many Ukrainians have, and they exhibit in their military strategy and, well, in every aspect of life, it's remarkable to be not how the dehumanization of Russians works, but actually how the humanity of Ukrainians was preserved despite that imposition of the Soviet system. Well, it costed a lot of efforts, a lot of lives, a lot of how, do, how would you call this underground work? Hidden efforts, hidden lives, double living, a lot of suffering too, a lot of art and literature as well. And we, we are really lucky that we managed to preserve this. We are really lucky that we managed to stay who we were after all the years of Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union, but it didn't come naturally to us. People did fight for it all the time from the very beginning. There were people fighting for it and passing it through the generations. That is why I was so unhappy when you said 100 years ago, nobody cared for Ukraine. Nah, it wasn't like that. There were a lot of people who 
cared deeply and who value that more than they value their own happiness, success, and life. So that is why it was possible, those values, those understanding of humanity and right thing to, to, to live in, right way to, to live in this world, to, to collaborate or to cooperate with other people, to treat other people, to treat yourself, to treat culture in general was more important for those people than being safe, successful, and alive. That's why, and that's what we see now. It's the, the war, it's the, I forgot the word in English. It's a war for, for the way you see the world and it's the war for the values that you support. Not, not, not only for the territories, not only for the power, money, it's, it's the, the, the war for the values. What role does language play? So you've mentioned uh, art, literature, culture. Um, it's been a revelation, you know, understanding how many artists were appropriated by Russia who are actually Ukrainian. That's been a, a fascinating journey over the last couple of years and, and starting to get to know Ukrainian literature a little bit better. But language, it seems, is at the heart of this process of resilience at the heart of this process of preserving these humane values, because what people I think are starting to realize a little late, perhaps, is that Russia weaponizes everything, everything at its disposal. It will burn up all its resources, both soft power and hard power, and it will also deploy its language as a weapon, as a vicious weapon. Um, so what is your, I mean, how, how have you come to that surrealization? Have you always known this, or is it something that's grown and evolved over time, that understanding? Well, the strategy of total oppression and total promoting itself, the, the, the normal imperialistic strategy, exists for at least 500 years from the side of Russia, Soviet Union inherited something from Russian imperial and then the modern contemporary Russia inherited all the shit uh, from uh, Soviet Union, they are rich in resources and in money too, and they do not hesitate to in invest in that. That is how the myth of great Russian culture was built. And the language they use it as a tool to kill the other cultures that they were trying to devolve. And at some point it worked. You were not valuable if you were not able to create or work or write or whatsoever in Russian language. Even though like so there were periods and formally it was considered like the, the okay, let, let, let them write or publish or whatsoever in Ukrainian. That's my grandfather whose original surname was, there are two versions, either Babko or Babka, which are both like Ukrainian words and so Ukrainian surnames and my surname as you can see is Babkina which is typical Russian ending so he was born in uh, 1921 when it was actually the time of Russification uh, uh, sorry Ukrainization of Ukraine when it was allowed allowed and promoted to speak Ukrainian like and to show your national roots 
because before and then later again it was considered as a bourgeois nationalism and forbidden. So that was a period of time when it was kind of possible to stay Ukrainian. Still, my grandfather's parents knew so well that his future gonna be easier and better if he would have Russian name that instead of giving him the normal family name that everybody had, he assigned him as a babkin, which would be the Russian one. And that was in time of Ukrainization, which means the Ukrainian language was like kind of promoted and not forbidden. What to, but what, what do I tell you about the other times? And uh, still it didn't work the same like with all the other strategies, but still, at some point it works like this Russian propaganda is huge and powerful and covered by a lot of money, wild Eastern charm, valley, dancing, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, opera singers whatsoever. But to be, to be, to be really short, I, I, I've written a blog entry to my uh, Substack account recently, which says, if something is Russian, it kills. Culture, design, ballet, literature is a background, a substructure on which the society is built. So the society that grew up on Russian culture and Russian, you name it, this is a monster society. This is a dangerous society. And that's the answer for the question, what this culture produces? What does it brings? What does it make people to be? And to basically with language, because the language is the code to be present in some kind of context, cultural and social and informational context, which is which is very faulty, which is very dangerous. And, you know, to help people sort of um, imagine a post-Muscovite future, you know, people will point to, as you say, sort of the canon of Russian literature and these great works and blah, blah, blah. But what works were not written, were not created in the hundreds and hundreds of local languages uh, of those parts of Russia which were colonized and their languages either suppressed or turned into second tier languages um, and Russified. I think it's a useful thought experiment to imagine the non-existent literature of all the people who have been, I would say, captured by the prison of the Russian Empire. There was a huge amount of those people. Also, when we talk about Ukrainian literature, uh, a lot of people at some point did switch to Russian and did flow to Moscow, to, to, to St. Petersburg or whatsoever. And Russia was always good in appropriating others' heritage. Still, what is called like Russian avant-garde in, in modern art is mostly made by Ukrainian or artists from Belarus. Uh, I once participated in a demonstration that followed by the dialogue with uh, MoMA Museum in New York when they had an exhibition of Russian avant-garde 
where almost nothing actually was Russian. And after all, we made them to change the, at least to change the descriptions and something. And well, they, they, they have been doing this for centuries. They have been appropriating all they can and just destroying whatever they can't. And it was not immediate that we saw and were able to explain the mechanism, how it works. And it all was always supported with a great money and power and blood. And of course, you are continuing that tradition of investing uh, your creative uh, talent uh, in the Ukrainian language. Um, what are the themes that you explore in your literature and how have those changed from before, you know, Maidan 2014, then there's the, you know, the long war period in the East and now full-scale war. Do you find your creative processes or, or the themes that uh, you embed in your, in your stories and novels, are they, are they changing? Are they changed by the times that you're living through? Well, yes and no. Obviously, as yes, I also I develop and my language develops, my instrument theory develops, but what deeply touches me and what I want to talk about is always the same things. And it's basically partly historical and partly just the same thing for the whole world. It's how are people shaped by what? But what traumas, but by what generational things, by what, and how do they deal with those things that hurt them and shape them? And how can the outcome of what you become and what you bring in the world be the less harmful and the most pleasant? How to live with all the shit we get from the world, from our past, from our neighbor, from our war, from our pains from our traumas, from our losses, and still be functioning, be harmless to others, be probably loving and caring, and be happy at least sometimes. So that's what I'm writing about all the time on different levels. I investigate it in, in, in terms of historical development of Ukrainian families and on and personal development and diving into imaginary worlds or coming back to very realistic writing, but it's all the same for me. So I wouldn't say the world changed something. I'm feeling now more responsible for explaining what's going on in Ukraine, how do people feel and what happens to them, but that's more like in the publicistic sense, some writings I do beside the, the beside my books and yeah of course setting there is a setting that I place my characters and my stories in and the settings the context is important so it's what what is happening now but the main conflicts they are the same all the way and those are those I've just described I must admit I don't have enough enough vocabulary in English to talk about things like that my English is very far from English <laughs> and it's been very challenging to live in a different language surrounding while you're used to use your language 
in the fullest of its possibilities and twist it and turn it however you want. I can't do this in English. So sometimes I feel like very tongue-tied about, especially when it comes to some thin materials and complicated questions. But I'm trying my best. I mean, and that's a... forgive me all my grammar mistakes. Not at all. No, no, there's not many of those at all. But I can I can appreciate the uh, the frustration of not being able to let your you know full expression and imagination loose uh, in 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 the language. Um, the other aspect, of course, must be a certain dissonance, a certain um, complexity that comes from really sort of you know exploring Ukrainian literature, advocating for it. Um, going to many you know ukrainian events while at the same time uh, you know traveling backwards and forwards either mentally or physically um between these two worlds how do you how do you sort of you know manage um the complexity of these these very different cultures you just manage it you don't have a choice really uh, I'm deeply in love with Ukrainian literature, which I discovered quite late at my twenties because uh, the school curriculum, the 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 things we used to read at schools, were still the one what we inherited from Soviet Union, and so the curriculum was you get it was written yeah. that way that people would just hate it. So. Either not the appropriate books, not the best text of the authors, or not the best timing, because something you are not able to understand when you are 12. And then when you are 20, you discover it. Wow. So that what had happened to me too. I did not believe Ukrainian classics exist. I did not recognize it. I thought they only used to write sheets, so probably all the best writers were murdered or whatsoever. And then I discovered different books, or I reread the books I was struggling with when I was 12 or 13, and then when I was an adult and able to understand those and appreciate those, they were super cool. The world knows not so much about those books because we are still starting to work on presenting them and showing them to the world. But there is an important thing that something should be shown and presented on time so what could have become the huge hit in 60s looks kind of obsolete now or whatever have become a classic the world classics in 20s looks like weird really weird now imagine reading anything from the classics like from the past centuries without knowing this is a classics and without having all the generations like reading this before you imagine somebody writing Moby Dick now who would even publish that so the scenes were not done on time because the best writing was muted and muted and hidden by by authorities Russian Emperor and then Soviet Union. And it's gonna be while the other scenes from Russian culture were heavily promoted and artificially built, brought to the pantheon of the world's classics. 
So now it's gonna take us some work and efforts to prove that Ukrainian culture or literature is not smaller and worse. It was just not promoted on time, but the quality of it. And it's I I do believe we're gonna discover more smaller literatures devoured in time by, by Russian culture and and finally, people are gonna probably start critically looking at the great Russian culture and like great like this, and see it is probably not as great as heavily promoted and advertised. And certainly, I think uh, the imperial narratives uh, in uh, Russian nineteenth-century literature, which were in many cases, you know, glossed over not gone into depth, not called out. Um, those narratives, if people are going to continue studying that literature, those narratives and those impulses need to be uh, really called out uh, in, in a strong way, in a way that perhaps for a lot longer, uh, imperial narratives in English literature have been sort of studied and uh, and, and analysed, and, and people need to be made uh, or are being made aware of those when they study those. Um, do you think this process of discovering classic uh, Ukrainian literature and discovering new writers um, is, uh, and having some of those translated as well, because of course what the war seems to have accelerated is the process of starting to translate these, or some of them, the tip of the iceberg, and making them, um, you know, bringing them to to Western audiences. But will this process also help stimulate the uptake and uh, translation of modern uh, Ukrainian literature as well? Hopefully. It sounds cynical, but that's how the market works. People always take interest in this kind of events. Like, as I have a friend who says, people buy dead children, which sounds creepy, but it's kind of true. And the price we are paying for this promo of Ukrainian literature is too high. And I guess if we had a choice, every single writer, translator, editor, and just the, every single Ukrainian would choose not to pay this price, but we are paying it anyway. Uh, so yeah, we now have uh, a lot of attention. We had it in 2013 and in 2014, and I would prefer, honestly, if, it hadn't, if we had not an attention, but somewhere upon, and help in, in defending our borders back then, because if the world community would, would interfere on Russia, occupied Crimea, and parts of Ukraine and the East, the full scale invasion probably wouldn't happen now. But we have what we have, and this provokes interest, obviously. So we can have Ukrainian literature is cool, Ukrainian art is cool, we have a lot of things to show. And it's tricky being a small language, which no one really understands and speaks. So that's that was always an obstacle to getting your writer to the Western audiences. You need a native speaker of some Western language who knows Ukrainian well, not, not, not Russian, but Ukrainian, cool enough to understand the literature, poetry, and who is also a writer himself a little bit, so who can transfer the informational and artistic and emotional value of the text in different language. There are not many such people in the world. 
but now they due to this interest they're gonna be more of those so they're gonna become our advocates and our promoters and of course the internal market for uh, ukrainian literature is important and this may be another driver of the renaissance uh, in in ukrainian writing and that is that so many ukrainians whose first language may have been russian they may be multilingual their ukrainian may have been less uh, fluent than their russian so many people now are consciously um not speaking Russian, uh, consciously working on their Ukrainian language uh, from right across uh, Ukraine. Um, I mean, first of all, let's talk about the, the 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 commercial aspect, which is obviously it's sort of quite a cold conversation, but the readership for Ukrainian literature will no doubt increase, I think, through this process. But then secondly, I was going to ask about the actual process that individuals go through, because it's a uh, it's a hard thing being brought up in one language, being brought up to believe certain things about that language, maybe even having, you know, a strong emotional attachment to it. And yet in the face of genocidal violence, that language becomes toxic uh, in your in your mouth and in your head. And you have to tear it out and, and learn something else, almost transform yourself. So I, I wanted to ask about that process and and what people must be going through who've decided to go on that journey to move away from from Russian. For some people, it's easy. Like I, I, I was born in Russian speaking family and grew up in Russian speaking family. Was it when I was 14, 15, I, I've chosen far before the war, I've chosen consciously to speak and write in Ukrainian. And for instance, my mother was totally okay and pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russian whatsoever. Still, she speaks Russian because it's her language and she's probably too traumatized, too weak, too, too whatsoever to switch. And I basically, I hide this language. Hearing it is already traumatizing for me and still I have to deal with those people and we have to find the points that can unite us, not separate us. This language difference uh, was used for ages to separate Ukrainian society into Russian speaking and Ukrainian speaking. And it was used as an explanation in 2013 and 14 that why, why Russian troops were found in our territory and Russian military men, because they were protecting the Russian-speaking Ukrainian. But seriously. But it's not like we've always been like that. Uh, the Ukrainian language and literature and writing was forbidden officially during Russian Empire and then Soviet Union more than 200 times, more than 200 of official laws, decrets, and other documents were written and signed and uh, established about for in Ukrainian language. We were violently, forcibly crucified during 400 years at least. So of course this has an impact on the results. But now that everybody, I guess, realized why it's worth opposing, it goes back very quickly and in like very naturally too. I'm proud to say we are not those those people who would force people 
speak Ukrainian, but most of Ukrainians now stop doing it for their own reasons by themselves and feel good about it. And I'm so proud of all those people. I'm so proud of their, their choice because that's the point when you have to take a choice, you have to make a choice and take a responsibility for this choice. Some people are not able, some people are not strong enough, some people are not whatsoever. And not that they like it, but it's like kind of explainable, understandable. But I'm so proud and so grateful to those people who don't speak Russian anymore, who speak Ukrainian, who read Ukrainian, who write Ukrainian. The last question area really, I think, is is quite an important one. And again, there's a, a, a real distinction, I think, between uh, Russians and Ukrainians, and that is the diaspora. It seems that for many generations, uh, whether they're in Canada, America or other places, the Ukrainian diaspora has kept a strong knowledge of the past and culture alive. And not only that, there seems to be quite a high level of organization between the Ukrainian diaspora. You know, they'll, they'll get things done. They'll um, form cohesive groups, whether it's in academia or social or community groups. Yes, and they would preserve the culture and the language too. Mm -hmm. And this is incred incredibly cool. But that would also like show us how endangered those people within the Russian Empire or later Soviet Union were. That some people living far abroad, being mixed and uh, assimilated with other people, were still more able to preserve those things than how oppressed were others to lose that. And it's a remarkable contrast, isn't it, between I mean, I've always been fascinated by um, emigre community uh, and the you know, millions of um, not just Russians, but people from across the Russian Empire who fled in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution and ended up in Berlin, Paris, all over the place. Um, within a generation, their voices have largely disappeared. The identity of... Uh, the white Russian community had dissipated and disappeared and any political effect it might have had just sort of vanished really without making an imprint. And yet you compare that to the Ukrainian diaspora who now, uh, you know, 70, 80 years on are, are, are still there and preserving traditions. I think that, that's quite an important comparison. Because it just was it? One, 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 one cruel and ugly uh, imperialistic shit replaced by the other one. So of course those voices vanished away because they were like trying to use the possibility to play the victim and just to keep being like the imperialistic shit in their own way. There was nothing like valuable, nothing serious, nothing, nothing beautiful under it. So of course it was gone. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely correct. There wasn't a, a value to to fight for. Um, it seems to me that your writing and the way you talk is incredibly forward-looking. So the last question, do you remain optimistic for Ukraine's future? Uh, are, do you fully believe in, uh, in the victory um, and in a bright future for Ukraine, not just even within itself, but within Europe as well? It doesn't really like work like this, that you just sit and believe. 
you do believe and you do everything you can for that then it's a real belief so that's what i do and i guess all the ukrainians are doing the same now not only we believe in this we are really like doing everything we can for this and this is the the, the best form of believing in something i think that's a very powerful place to to end and i think that's a lesson that uh anyone who uh, values democracy or or values in their own country can learn from ukrainians that nothing comes easy it has to be fought for and if you don't fight for it it's gone before you uh, even realize it kind of thank you very much for the conversation Katerina, it was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Good luck in Thank all your you. endeavors. I'm sorry for some some rude words, but that's the way I speak, and it's probably just too late for me to filter that. 